I like to try stuff, see what works and see what doesn't. And I think that the, the willingness to try stuff, discard what doesn't work and keep what does work is really key. I don't know if that's necessarily some underlying process of how everyone should work. It's certainly how I do work. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my conversation on leadership and the environment with Dan Pink. It begins with how he and I met, which is, as he put it, me trashing him in the major media publication, Inc., and uh, it turns out he's actually a pretty regular guy, just a regular guy with over 40 million views of his TED Talk and several number one bestsellers. So quite a storyteller. And if you're interested in influence, he shares a lot of the behind the scenes techniques. He talks about his next book, When, and about his writing and editing techniques, especially cutting out, especially a big theme that shows up in this podcast of putting the reader first. He talks about how he does his research, science, and how to make science useful where his ideas come from, and things like that. So if you're interested in the leadership part of the Leadership in the Environment podcast, the first part of this conversation is going to be great. And then we'll hear what his personal challenge is going to be, which he was planning on doing before. And I'll let you listen. And here's the conversation. Hey, Josh. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good. So we could do audio, we could do video, or... You tell me what's best for you. Let's stick with audio just so that I think so that the people at home can, they get the full thing that we're getting. So there's nothing that we're secretly getting besides that. That works. And actually something I've been doing lately, which is up to you if you want, is that I find that the conversation at the beginning, just before the podcast begins, is often very interesting and often after the end is too. So my recording starts as like it's already started. Fine with me. So cool that we just like we're in it right now. Absolutely. Okay, cool. You're in it right now. Yeah. I learned as a journalist that I, back in the old days when there were tape recorders, I never turn off the record, the tape recorder. I used to use these like little, remember those like little mini cassettes? The really small ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would never turn off the recorder until the person I was interviewing had left and was out of view. Because I agree with you, a lot of times when people, at the end of like the quote unquote interview, people say, oh yeah, there's one other thing that was bugging me. And then it's like, you get the best stuff. Yeah, I, I've joked around that I think there should be a podcast of like the pre-podcast, post-podcast podcast. That's a funny idea, actually. That's actually kind of clever. Yeah, I, I see with you, I had to, I didn't want to ambush you. With friends, I can do it, but you know, so I had to give you the option. I'm, I'm really glad that you went for letting it come out as it is because I think I think it's better for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. So I'm all for it. Go for it. Cool. And all right. So, so everyone who didn't already know, this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. <laughs> this is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Daniel Pink and. I wanted to start, there's like a bunch of things I want to start off with because you're coming out with a new book and you're, you've been very gracious that I can't imagine the stress that goes into, or maybe you've done enough huge book launches, but one, you're giving time in a, what I imagine is a, is a lot of stuff going on. I kind of want to share how we met and then I kind of want to talk about some of the stuff that I've learned from you. And I think I want to start with 
can I start with how we met and let and leave it as a teaser for you if you're up for describing a little bit about the next book? Go for it. So I'm a little nervous because I don't want to make it seem like you're I had a great time meeting you and I don't want to flood you with people thinking, oh, it's easy to meet Dan Pink. Maybe you like that. Maybe you don't. But well, it might be easy to meet me. Most people don't enjoy the experience. So you're the exception there. <laughs> well, so what happened was I was writing, I, you know, I work a lot on the difference between uh, motivation and in education, how to teach differently. I, I learned a lot through case study and lectures and I didn't find that very effective in teaching me effective skills. Mm. And so Drive is like a natural book for me to read. And I was writing about how I had a criticism of Drive, which was that you talk about these scientists who discover these these things about motivation that's different what people than what people expect. But they also almost get fired. And I think probably they don't want to get fired. And so that if if you're good at motivation, if you're almost fired, you're, it's probably not a sign that you're great at the practice of motivation. Even if you know the theory of motivation. <laughs> right, right, right. So I started writing this article for Inc. because I have a column there and I'm about to publish it. And I think, you know, do I want to criticize a guy who's got like tens of millions of views of his TED talk and, and like bestsellers and stuff? It's possible he might read this and get pissed off. Like, I, I don't know. So I contact you and I said, you know, just so you know, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to illustrate this idea. And you wrote back very graciously. And, and what I remember you saying was, uh, it was like a respectful disagreement. You said, I see what you're getting at. You know, I, I disagree, but, you know, I respect that you put the article out. And that started things off. And I, I really liked that. It felt like for me as a budding author at the time, it, I didn't know if my book would succeed or not. And it gave me a lot of encouragement. And uh, so thank you. <laughs> well, sure. And, and I guess the moral of the story is uh, the best way to uh, get to know me is to just trash me in public. <laughs> I, I hope that it was. No, no, no. I'm just I'm totally I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. I think that I appreciate that story, Josh. And I think that one of the things that I live here in Washington, D.C., and one of the things that I have noticed having lived in Washington, D.C. now for almost 25 years is essentially the demise here, especially here in Washington, of respectful disagreement. And I think it's I think it's extremely harmful for culture and for ideas. Uh, things have become so tribal that people believe what their tribe says and disagree with what the other tribe says, and they don't listen, they don't think, they don't change their minds. So maybe we are, for your listeners out there, role modeling some behavior. And the disagreement was not like a vast disagreement either. I mean, if I remember right. You talk about D.C., that does it, the disagreement there, and it's like name-calling and all this stuff. Yeah. Actually, I was not long ago listening to a Sam Harris podcast, and he got some really disagreement with, uh, I forget who it was. It might have been the guy from Dilbert, uh, Scott Adams. Uh-huh. And at the end... They were like, really, it sounded almost angry at each other. And then at the end, they're like, both of them were like, that was great. I was like, that is great. <laughs> there is not enough of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now I'm really curious about the next book coming up because it's if it's called When, is that right? Yes, sir. And something about the stuff that you do is like so simple and so like it, I feel like when I read your stuff, or even just look at what it's about. It reminds me of Michelangelo saying, I took away everything that wasn't David and what was left was David. And or someone else said, you know, when you take away everything, greatness is something. It's not when there's nothing more to add. It's when you've there's nothing more to take away. Yeah. Do you think of that when you write? Is that something that that drives you a little bit? I mean, I appreciate that kind uh, reference. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that a big part of writing or even conveying ideas is. What do you leave out? 
I don't see myself in what I do in that way of, uh, you know, there's a block of stone and my job is to discover the statue within. Uh, I'm not that elegant or artistic, but I do think that there is something to be said. I, I think a lot of writing is leaving stuff out. And so when I write and, and especially when I edit and rewrite, I tend to be pretty ruthless about what I keep in and what I don't. So I, I try to make as an editor, when I read over my stuff, like drafts and things, I basically every sentence, just about every word, but certainly every sentence has to justify itself to me. You know, I look at a sentence, say, why should I not kill you right now? And that sentence has to defend itself. And I think that's a way to, to write with greater clarity. I think it's a way to convey ideas more sharply and with greater simplicity. And it sounds like you're talking about not just your writing process, but this sounds like more of, of a life process. And because I think there's the writing. So there's like the ideas you come up with, because just the titles of your books are pretty compelling. And it feels like, is it just, you're not talking about just writing, I take it, because there's the videos, there's the coming up with the ideas, and there's the, the writing. And I mean, I have to say, I think you're giving me too much credit for being deliberative and strategic. <laughs> I like to try stuff, see what works and see what doesn't. And I think that the, the willingness to try stuff, uh, discard what doesn't work and keep what does work is, is really key. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily some underlying process of how everyone should work. It's certainly how, how I do work. And I like to put myself as much as possible in the reader's shoes or the viewer's shoes. Uh, I've seen so many books uh, that I find are padded that I feel have, you know, like just because you it's like it's like grading a kid's term paper. It's like, well, just because you found it out and did the research doesn't mean you have to include it. And so especially in writing books, I just feel like anybody who spends 20 bucks and spends, you know, several hours like I, I, that's a pretty high bar here. I don't want to waste their time. Were you always like that or did it come in time? Is, it, is that a discipline that you have to reinforce? Oh, it, it definitely. It's about getting more disciplined. It's about getting more mature. It's about just getting better at something that is very hard to get good at. Okay. So if I'm listening to you and thinking, God, it's really hard to do, then you also feel that way. And it's not like it comes easier to some people. For me, I, I can, I'll speak to my own experience. Uh, I've been doing this for a reasonably long time and I still find writing very hard. I don't sit down and 2000 words just come spilling out of me voluptuously. Uh -huh. That's, that's not how I work. I think of writing in some ways a blue collar profession in that I, I liken it to building a wall. Okay. So every day I show up and I put some bricks in the wall, right? And I try to make the bricks straight, stand up, support the previous bricks. And then I come back the next day and do the same thing and do the next day the do thing and then do the next day the do thing. And then I look at it and say, Oh my God, it's wobbly. It's not straight. Got to take out those bricks, come back and put up bricks the next day. So I'm just a, I think of it as, as a job where the, the key skill is showing up, showing up and doing the work. I don't believe in inspiration. I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in showing up and doing the work, whether you want to or not. And most if I waited until I was ready to write or inspired, I would never get anything done. I'm curious. Have you looked at my blog by any chance? I'm curious now. I have not, or at least not recently. Cause yeah, it's, I, one of my habits is to write him a blog post, a blog post a day. And so I have not missed a day since January 2011. So I'll hit 20. That's incredible. Yeah. I'll hit 2700 yeah. posts pretty soon. I didn't realize that you were posting every day. Yeah. That's incredible discipline, but think of all you've learned in doing that. Yeah. People keep asking me, they, they're like, I think a common reaction for people is like, Oh, you have a lot of discipline. And they're saying it in a way of, of like excusing themselves. Like, this is why I don't do it. Cause 
you have discipline, but I don't. But it's the opposite. It's that writing is what gave me the discipline. And my writing hasn't improved nearly as much as I would like it to have. But my discipline and what it's given me in the rest of life is like off right. the charts. Totally. I totally, I totally agree. I do not have that. Uh, I've not exhibited that degree of dedication. I mean, Seth Godin has been doing this for a long time as well. Yeah. And it's really remarkable. And so I, I think that's the way to, that's the way to do it. I tend to be, when I work on a big project, whether it's a book or a long article, that is, I show up every day, I show up at the same time, I give myself uh, a word count. And I, I even use the often use the the you, you might have even blogged about this the the Jerry Seinfeld technique where where you um uh, each day you you write you you put a check on the calendar oh and then suddenly I, you have this this long just, just tell me about that I, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. actually know that episode yeah well it's not an episode it's actually it's it's not an episode of Seinfeld the show it's, oh. it's the practice of Jerry the comedian who oh, feels okay. like he has to write all the time and so what you have is you have so imagine a calendar. And so if I write today, we happen to be talking on the 24th of a month, I put an X. And then if I write tomorrow, I put an X on the 25th. And if I keep writing every day, it's like I got a streak going. I don't want to break it. Something that drove me is the guy who set up my WordPress page. He, I asked him, how often do you blog? Is it like Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Is it five times a week? What is it? And he looks at me dead on and he just says, every day. If you miss one day, you can miss two. If you miss two, it's all over. And then I don't need the checks because it's just like, yeah, did I do it? Yeah. In fact, last night I posted just after midnight. I allow myself like before I fall asleep, if it's past midnight, that's okay. And it was like, I almost forgot. And I was about to go to sleep and I was like, oh, I got to write a post. And so it's just, it's very easy. I don't have any apps. I don't have any, you know, emails with friends to make sure I did it or stuff like that. It's just, if I did it, yes. If not, all right, do it and then go to sleep. Yeah. And there, there is that, um, I mean, you I know I, I don't know who the source is, but a um, you know a, a great musician who says if I if I don't practice one day I know it. If I don't practice two days, the critics know it. If I don't practice three days, the audience knows it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've heard that. Yeah, I can't think of where it came from. I don't know either. So now I want to actually talk about timing. I'm curious. Can we can you share a bit about when? Yeah, sure. I get a sneak preview for the audience. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll give a super short sneak preview. Uh, so, yeah. So this is a book about timing. So we all have this notion that timing is everything, right? So we, we believe that. But we tend to think that timing is an art. Okay, it's an intuition, guesswork. It's an art. And what I've discovered after some excruciatingly difficult research and writing is that actually it's more of a science than we think. And there's this body of research out there across many, many fields. So, for instance, in Drive, I wrote mostly about psychology, some about economics. This is much more sprawling research in, in biology, endocrinology, anesthesiology, as well as social psychology, economics, anthropology, neuroscience, that allows us to make better decisions about when to do things, better, smarter, evidence-based decisions about when to do things. And so the, the sort of high-concept view of this book is that there are gazillions of how-to books out there. I wanted to write a when-to book, and I wrote it largely. It's going to sound silly, but I, I wrote the book in large part because I wanted to read it. I was, I was actually the idea for this book came when I was looking for a book like this because I realized like how many timing decisions I made. I said, okay, someone's got to have written a book about like timing, and they hadn't. And so, um, in order to read this book, I had to write it. So, there's a couple questions that came to mind, and the first one that came to mind was something you said at the beginning because you're talking about all the science, you do a lot of research. 
And your background is in law. I guess you, there must have been some transition you wrote for Al Gore, who is like, I guess, politics, legal slash science. I would have thought your background was in science. It almost was. I was a linguistics major as an undergraduate. Uh, linguistics is a pretty interesting field because it sits at the juncture in many ways of behavioral science and biological science. And increasingly now, not so much when I was studying, but computational science. And so, uh, but, you know, I was a middle class kid from central Ohio, so there's no way I was going to go get a graduate degree in linguistics. So instead I went to, so instead I went to law school and, um, you know, mistakenly, that's all right though. And, um, but I've always been deeply interested in the social science. And again, I don't portray myself as, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist, but I love uh, talking to the people who are scientists. I love interviewing them. I love reading their work. And one of the things that many scientists don't do a good enough job of is explaining what, like, there are a couple of things I think they don't do a good enough job at. One is explaining what they found in language that regular people can understand. And second is much of the academic world remains very siloed. So the psychologists often don't talk to the economists. The economists certainly are not going to talk to the anthropologists. The anthropologists aren't going to talk to the biologists. But in, in many realms, they're all they're Each of these discrete disciplines are asking somewhat similar questions. Uh, this is true to some extent in, in motivation. It's true in a large extent in timing. So you have, for instance, medical researchers showing things like this. I'll give a couple of examples of this, that uh, endoscopists are, you're going for a colonoscopy, right? Uh, it sh there shouldn't be any difference in your colonoscopy if you do it in the morning or the afternoon. But there's a lot of research showing, it actually is, that endoscopists find fewer, uh, probably half as many polyps in the afternoon, in afternoon exams versus morning exams. Huh. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Is it like so, the judges and the convictions? Uh, yeah, the, I write about the judges thing. To me, the judges, the judges thing is a, is an interesting story because it's really a story about breaks and how the importance of taking breaks. But yeah, so that's a good example of it. So, so you have this rest research in, say, endoscopy. Okay. And then you say, Oh, wait a second. There are four times as many errors in anesthesia in hospitals at 3 p.m. than at 9 p.m. at 9 a.m. Huh. That's kind of interesting. That's in anesthesiology, endocrinology. But then you go into, you have economists, uh, well-known economists at the University of Chicago studying, say, test scores in LA, finding that student test scores in LA, uh, looking at, you know, two million profiles of two million students, uh, found that students do less well in math in the afternoon than in the morning. And so here you have uh, anesthesiologists and research in anesthesiology, research in endoscopy and research in economics that are all kind of saying the same, all reaching very similar conclusions. And so the ability to, so, so what I like to try to do is, is where there are similarities is knit those together. I spoke recently to a, uh, he's a engineering, an, an environmental engineer at a major oil company. He, he's not allowed to say which one, okay. uh, but he was on. And he's talking about science and he's talking about science and it, it, we both agreed afterward it wasn't, it wasn't as compelling and intriguing as it could be. But when you talk about your stuff, it's like, that's kind of interesting. I, I would like to know how this fit together. And, oh, I could use that in my life. I feel like your yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, you're very nice to say that too. I mean, I, I do look at it through, I do look at it a little through that lens. Like, like, okay, like this is somewhat interesting, but why should I care? And I care because 
like this research has changed how I live my life. So, so I would like, for instance, one of my, my elder daughter had to get her wisdom teeth taken out and having, and I was in the throes of this research and, and I said, okay, you are having the first appointment of the day. You are not having an <laughs> appointment if you're going under general anesthesia. That's why you wrote the book. Yeah. You know, and even things like I've not gotten a colonoscopy yet, but I'm at the age, you know, roughly at the age where I should probably be getting one fairly soon. And there's no way on God's green earth I would schedule anything but a morning colonoscopy. Yeah. Your stuff, it makes you think like how, I hadn't thought about that. And it's yeah. A few writers are kind of like that. And I guess that's why you get all those all those views. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So... Motivation seems to be a big thing. And like, do you also talk about how to make timing work for you? Because, you know, usually they say chance favors the, the prepared mind and things like that. Do you touch on things like that? Not really. It's a great question because when you think about this is a very tough subject. The subject of timing is a tough subject because I don't want to write about time. That's a very elusive subject, um, very complex subject dealing with physics and perception and all that. And and then, you know, some amount of timing is, as you say, you know, luck, fortune. And that's, that's a very hard subject to write about in an evidence-based way. What I'm, what this book is about, and readers will be able to find out more about it in January is, you know, why do beginnings matter so much? Uh, what happens at the midpoint of something? Why do endings matter? Uh, how do people synchronize in time? How do breaks in time change our performance? Uh, how does the way we think about time affect our behavior? Uh, why does the language we speak and how it reckons with tenses, verb tenses, change our perspective? All right. So you said that you connected it to your daughter and it's the book that you wanted to read that wasn't there. Did you share the, the was there a story of what prompted it in the first place? No, we're, I mean, we're, really what prompted it was my own curiosity that, you know, I realized I was making all of these decisions about when to do things, but I was making it in completely intuitive non-rational, non-evidence-based way. And I figured, okay, there's got to be a way to make these decisions better. And I realized that there were, but the research was splattered across all of these disciplines. So it feels like um, I think of Isaac Newton, he's quoted as saying, like, I'm a kid playing on the beach and there's this whole bunch of ocean out there. Like I'm playing with a few shells. And then meanwhile, the vast ocean is just out there. And I feel like you're Collecting shells, putting them together, yeah, and seeing what you can make of it. Like, is there that yep. childlike wonder, the fun? Well, I don't know. If it's childlike wonder. It's it's the. I look at it more like again. I go back to something much more blue collar. Is that sometimes I talk about this in terms of a, a mosaic? Okay, so let's say you're you're someone who's making a mosaic, and you have these tiny little tiles. And so what you're doing is you're gathering the tiles and you're trying to form fashion it into a broader mosaic. And that requires collecting a lot of tiles, throwing away a lot of tiles, uh, putting tiles in one place and realizing they don't belong there. And, you know, you know, spending a lot of time on it until the big until the picture actually emerges. All right. I'm going to ask, even though you, you talked about this already, I, I'm going to ask a personal tip for the throwing away tiles part. Yeah. I mean, you said that it's a discipline. It's a, it, to me, that's like the thing that I would like to work on most. And I feel like probably listeners 
would benefit from it too. Any, is there any tips you could give there that makes it easier? I mean, maybe it's just read that book on throwing stuff away. Yeah. Like stuff that is valuable. I'll I'll give you one very simple thing. Don't throw anything away permanently. That's more than anything else. It's like, you, you know, here's the thing. When I cut something out of a book or an article, I don't like put it in the trash and empty the trash. I put it into a folder and say, you know what? I can always go back and put it back in. <laughs> and I rarely do. That's the really, that's the thing. And so that makes it less daunting. So you're not pressing delete. You're not, you know, you're not uh, uh, lighting it all on fire and, and burning it to the ground to never see it again. Just see if you can do without it. And if you can, you should. So would you say that w- what you're doing there is, is kind of a trick that you play on yourself? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I mean, I'm conscious that I'm doing it. It's just that for writers or creators of any kind, if you create something, you produce something, it's hard to get rid of it because it's ours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's totally natural. OK, so what so what I, I guess it's I guess it might fall into the category of trick. So what I do is like, OK, I'm not getting I'm not really getting rid of it. I'm just putting it in another I'm just putting it in a folder for now and I can always come back and retrieve it. Um, so it's like, so it's just, it's just a way to move forward and see what it looks like without that piece that I've taken out. Okay. The, the reason I ask is partly uh, this theory that I have is that I think a lot of people, especially very successful ones, the things that a lot of people wish that they could do better. I think a lot of people who are successful have tricks that they do. Like, like I do, I do my exercise every day. I do burpees every day. Mm. And before I do them, it's like, I think a lot of people think somehow it gets easier after a while, but it doesn't. The, right. It's still hard to do. And it's hard right. to get, like I stand there. I'm like, okay, now I'll start. Okay, now I'll start. Okay, now <laughs> I'll start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I find that if I, if I, after the, that, I do some crunches. So if I put down the, the padding that I do that my crunches on, it like gets me to start. And I know well, that it's not really starting, but it does get me started. And I think a lot of people have these tricks. And I think a lot of people, yeah. they wish that they could be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who just loves going to the gym and he just lifts weights. But I bet he has tricks, too. OK, I'll give you some tricks then. OK, I see what you mean. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now, now I understand what you mean by trick. Yeah, totally a trick. OK, so I'll give you another one. I run. I don't always like to run. Uh, I find that simply forcing myself to put on my running shoes. Yeah. Is enough. Yeah. yeah. Once they're okay. on, it's like I'm just going to put on. My, you know, I say to myself, you don't have to run. Just put on your shoes. OK, I'll put on my shoes. I also use, you know, to maintain some discipline. I, I also use the, the, the Pomodoro technique some, many, many times. So where you, you know, that technique where you set a certain amount of time. Uh-huh. And you, you write for X amount of, you know, X amount of time. You work for X amount of time with no distractions and then you take a break. So I say, OK, what I'm going to do is uh, I don't really feel like doing anything, but I'm just going to do 30 minutes right now. And that's it. After 30 minutes, I can go back screwing around. And so what happens? I do my 30 minutes and I'm like, oh, OK, let me do it. Try another 30 minutes and then do another 30 minutes, another 30 minutes. So this lends credence to this this uh, tricks theory of mine that everyone has their tricks. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, yeah, yeah. Tricks, habits, practices, um, call it what you will. So talking about discipline and talking about motivation, when I wrote you about this podcast, you know, it's leadership in the environment. And I want to switch topics or kind of move over to environment. And first of all, is it something that's like an important thing to you? Is it not? Is it something that you care about? What you think about much? Leadership? Oh, uh, the environment in particular. Oh, oh, the oh, when you mean like the natural environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know that I'm going to in a little bit, I'm going to invite you. You don't have to, but I'll invite you to uh, to take on a, a personal challenge. OK. And before I do that, like, what is is the environment? Is it something you care about? Is it something you're active about? Is it something what did you think about when you got the invitation? 
Here's where I am on this. I mean, I, I'm not especially active, but I, I think that it's worthy. And the older I get, the more I realize its importance. Okay, so, so it's growing in importance because it's something I'd like to talk to you about. It's, you know, trying to motivate people to do stuff. Yeah. I think that a lot of people want to do stuff, but don't. And I think that, you know, if you value something and it's just easier not to, you got to tell yourself something so you can sleep at night. Yeah. And then people kind of reinforce and they dig in their heels without meaning to. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think the other way to change, you know, of course, another way to change your behavior is just make doing the right thing easier. Yeah. I think that's what like Elon Musk, I think, is doing that extremely well. I think he's you know, it's just this car emits less locally and even globally it emits less, too. So it's like make it a comfortable car, a safe car. And he's making it very easy. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a more mundane example from my own life. So my uh, my elder daughter, she's now uh, 20, but maybe when she was 10. So I guess about 10 years ago, uh, maybe, yeah, probably on 10, maybe nine, somewhere around there. Uh, so I have I've always worked at home uh, in one house. Uh, first house, I worked on the third floor. Today, I work in, in uh, the garage, 22 steps from our back door. And so so my kids you know, see me when they're around. And my elder daughter, when she was maybe 10, realized that I was not recycling white paper. Mm-hmm. I was just throwing it in my trash. Mm-hmm. OK. And she knew that from her school or something that you should really be recycling this white paper, not just throwing it away. And so what did she do? She could have hectored me Mm. and she could have said, Oh, come on, you got to do this instead. You know what she did? She made me a separate wastebasket for white paper. So she made it easier for you. Yeah. And so suddenly I'm recycling white paper. And then is it the case that once you got in the habit of it, then it was natural? Of course. Yeah. So my strategy is that, uh, you know, I think that I think my overall strategy is that uh, a lot of people associate changing behavior with deprivation or sacrifice, and they think yeah. it's hard to do or something that'll make their life worse. Right. And what's, what drove me to do this podcast is, or to, I mean, the podcast is a subset of, I believe that we, we're lacking leadership in the environment. I think the, right. the you know, it's whatever, whatever leadership we have is moving in the opposite direction that I think is the way that most people want to go. And I think that if I can get people to try it, well, what happened with me is that like I did these little experiments of, of going without packaged food for a while, just eating food okay. with no packaging and not okay. flying for a while. And okay. it seemed like not doing stuff. But when after I did it, it got very positive. And so what I want to do is get people guests that people know that I want to try them. I want to get them to, to take on these little challenges. And I think that the second conversations are going to be the really interesting ones where people are like, oh, I didn't realize that. Like you had a, an interaction with your daughter and it's like a, a yeah. bonding experience. So. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if it was a bonding experience for her. It was a masterful behavior change technique on her part. <laughs> so, okay, a masterful technique. Also, well, I guess a, an association that you make with you associate recycling with your daughter, or at least with the right white paper. Recycling white paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what I'm going to ask you to do, is, if you're up for it, and it's your option, yep. is to think of something that is relevant to you. That of your choice, and it doesn't have to. You know, the the goal is not to solve the world's problems overnight. That's that would be too much. But something that moves the needle, mm-hmm. that ma- matters to you, and it can be short term. And in fact, almost all of them have been like on the order of a week or two weeks or maybe a couple months at tops. Mm-hmm. And then the second conversation, we'll, we'll revisit how it went. Great. I mean, I've already we're a few days late, but I've I actually already made that kind of commitment, uh, literally starting four days ago. So I'm going to use that as my. Example. Okay. And 
just to make sure, is it something that you did because of, of, and in anticipation of this conversation? No, but, um, it works. <laughs> okay. Cause I made a rule that if someone's already doing something, then they have to do something new. Uh, but I've but, only been doing it for four days. All right. So let's, let's, uh, well, what is it? Not that if, if it's something you want to do, then I think what I want is people to be able to make these changes. Yeah. Yeah. So my wife and I are going a month. And this is partly for environmental reasons, not entirely for environmental reasons, but partly for environmental reasons, uh, going a month without eating beef, chicken, pork or dairy products. OK. And I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but just to make sure what what prompted it? What what's the goal? Uh, it was it was three things. It's actually more deliberative than most things in my life. Uh, it was three things. One of them was uh, one of them really a three legged stool, uh, personal health. Uh, some concerns about treatment of animals and environment. Okay. Yeah. I figured if, environment if you think, if, if you think, yeah, exactly. So if you think about uh, how cows are an incredibly inefficient way to turn plants into protein. Yeah. Not only that. Yeah. And I mean, inefficient, destructive way to turn plants into protein. So, so let's see if I can go a, let's see if we can, what it would be like to go a month without eating beef or chicken or pork and get our protein from, you know, mostly plant-based sources. Not in, you know, getting rid of dairy as well. I'm curious if you did you plan it out or did you just say, like, we're just going to stop or like what went into it? It's a conversation that we'd been having for a couple of months based on reading we've done, uh, other people's experiences, some pretty compelling. I thought, you know, reasonably compelling evidence on all three of those fronts, both personal health, uh, treatment of animals and environment. But again, I mean, we're doing it for months just to see how it goes. It's not a it's not a massive lifelong permanent commitment necessarily, but it could be. Who knows? Yeah, yeah that's the that's what an experiment does is you find out. And was it um, I'm curious how, how it's gone so far, but I'm going to save that question for later. OK, uh, how much meat do you normally eat? Is it like do you normally not eat that much or is it normally like every meal? Oh, no, not every meal at all. Let's take beef, chicken or pork. I probably would eat beef, chicken or pork maybe three, four times a week. OK, so it's a decent amount. So a month is, yeah. a, is a significant drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, same thing with dairy. It's like, you know, cheese and milk and all that. Are you cutting those out too or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so the full, like, not quite vegan. I guess you got fish I got in fish. that list. Yeah, yeah. And have you hit yet? I'm finding, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot from talking to people about this because a lot of people, the big challenges seem to come two big places so far. One is interacting with other people. Now, mm-hmm. You and your spouse, your wife are already in on it together, but a lot of times right. someone will say something with me and then they talk to the spouse and suddenly it all falls apart. Right. And the other thing is that when people travel, it seems to throw things out of whack. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I can totally see that. And I did it, uh, in part intentionally during a period of, we did it after a trip and during a period when I knew I wasn't going to have a huge amount of travel. Yeah. That, I think that makes it a lot easier. And if you were to continue it, I think the practice that you get this way will make it a lot easier for yes, when you do travel. I agree. I agree. I agree. Some people like to go for the full on, but I think it's the unexpected thing that makes it hard. If you expect the travel, then that might make it easier. Right. But I can tell you that what I'm finding is people hit these unforeseen things and that's when it falls apart. They're like, mm. oh, you know, oh, I didn't realize I was going to be visiting my mom and she always makes a mistake. Right. And then suddenly I don't know how to deal with that. And then, right. And then a lot of times people say, well, I can't do it. I didn't do it. So it's over. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I can see. I have not, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see whether I hit one of those crucibles. But so far, so good. We can keep talking. I would love to keep talking. But uh, before wrapping up, is there anything to cover? 
anything I didn't think to ask that's good to bring up? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, um, this question of, you know, the, making these small commitments and following up is really quite fascinating. So I'll be curious to see what you find out from other people as well. Yeah. I mean, my goal is I, I really hope that the podcast catches on and that people listen and say, oh, this my, my goal. Like I'm talking to I don't know if you know the science curator for Ted and he's you know, saying have one clear message. Yeah. And the message what I'm trying to get across is that I want to change the association of changing behavior from deprivation and sacrifice to opportunity for growth and discovery yeah. and living by your values. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when people talk about it, the second conversations are going to be like, this was great. I'm glad I did it. I've already had a few that are like, it fell apart. It was too hard. I couldn't do it. <laughs> and now we yeah. have, like I have third conversations scheduled with some people that are like, it was harder than I thought, right. but I do want to do it. Right. But I want, I want people to see, like, it's not, I don't want to present a Disney story of like, oh, it's just trivial. You know, you just have to do it right. And it's easy. Right. So that's what I'm working on. And I hope something comes out of it that really makes a difference. Cool. Yeah, cool. All right. So um, as much as I'd love to, after hanging up, keep going, I want to give the listeners everything. So when we hang up, then that'll be hanging up and and we won't get the the enjoyable conversation afterward. (laughs) Great to talk to you. And I'll talk to you again in about a month. Good luck with the meat thing. All right. Bye. A month with no beef, chicken, or dairy, that's Sounds like bigger than most people would go for. A month seems like a long time, especially for someone who has meat, chicken, dairy several times a week. I think this probably resonates with a lot of people listening. Like that's the sort of thing, if you've heard about factory farming and global warming and the emissions and the methane, that people would want to do. So I'm really curious to see how this works out. I wonder also how he'll handle the unforeseen challenges, how he resolves these things, what things he gets to work. And I kind of wonder if I prefer him to go through and have an easy time of it and say, look how easy it was or if he has to go through challenges so that we can learn from his experiences. But stay tuned and we'll hear. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior, There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.